Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Wow, there's so much there. And by the way, we stopped way before the end of the psalm. Uh, so there's so much here to teach, and I'm just going to pick out five things. And largely, these are the five things that my pastor buddies and myself, we just kind of were ruminating on on Monday. Uh, number one is this. The God of Pentecost is a God who arises. By the way, don't you love that first line, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered? When I was a kid, I was uh, uh, kind of checking out various churches and church traditions. I went to the Catholic church, went to, went to this house church, went to, uh, went to some charismatic churches. One of the charismatic churches I went into uh, had this song. Some of you will remember this song. May God arise, his enemies be scattered. Now, you know you're old because you're looking around. Only the old people are singing this. But you keep coming. Come on. May God arise, his enemies be scattered. May God arise, his enemies be scattered. May God, may God arise. Now, that wasn't that big a thing. Except the minute they started singing it, I saw a bunch of guys, particularly on the first few rows, stand up and start dancing to it. Now, I got to tell you, they were dancing... uh, I hope in the Holy Spirit, because they weren't dancing for men, because it was like the weirdest dancing I've ever seen. Mostly kicking like this, you know. But I just thought, yeah, it was hard to stand in there, sing that song, watch these guys dancing, and not just get a grin on your face. Just thinking, wow, these people mean business with this may God arise thing. And y'all, there's something special about it. We are a faith. And at Pentecost, they wanted to celebrate a faith where this God of ours didn't stay seated when he wanted to get some things done. In Psalm 68, this thing's quoted in Numbers. In Numbers 10, that's all the way back to Moses, when the tabernacle with the ark set out, when they said, okay, let's get going, let's get moving. The, the cloud above us is moving. The fire above us is moving. Let's get going. When it, they set out, Moses said in, in Numbers 10.35, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Basically the same line in Psalm 68. It's a great prayer. In every situation you face this week, what you ought to be saying is, may God arise in this situation. Amen? May God arise in this situation. You're having financial troubles. You need to say, may God arise in this situation. Now, by the way, sometimes that might mean, you know, some money comes in all of a sudden, unexpected. It might mean the Lord says, all right, I'm going to put some conviction on you. You need to establish a budget. I don't know what happens when God arises. He may cause in responsibility. He may just throw gifts at us. I don't know. But don't you want to know what he knows? Don't you want to do what he wants you to do? Because in any situation, that's going to be a better idea than what I got in mind. (laughs) So this is what happens. When God arises, you descend. When God arises, that means may his will be done in this situation as it is in heaven. And may my will not necessarily be done in this situation. You're willing to say, God, take over no matter what it might mean for me. Now, It's interesting that in the church tradition, notice I've spoken of the Old Testament tradition. I've talked to you a little bit about the synagogue tradition. Uh, Now, let's talk about the church tradition. The church has used this passage largely in celebration of the ascension of Jesus. You remember what happened. He comes back from the resurrection. 
He spends some time with his disciples, and then he ascends. And they all stand there. And they're watching him go up. But what he has told them is, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. So the church uses this frequently for the ascension. But at Pentecost, this God would arise like we've never known him to arise. So that he lives not with us, but within us and out to a waiting world. Everything is different after that. So he ascends not just physically into heaven, he ascends spiritually into us. Now, I wish I knew the context. I wrote it down in my journal this morning. There's a word in a Wesley hymn. I was about to look up the Mary to say, uh, if I had said it to Mary, I'd remember it this morning probably. John Wesley, as he, or Charles Wesley, as he's writing one of the hymns, and I try to sing a Wesley hymn every morning. As he's writing a hymn, he uses the word inly, I-N-L-Y. I thought it was a misspelling, meant only. Nope. It's inly. May God move inly. I'm thinking, he's making up words. Well, Paul did it. Paul did it from time to time. He'd make up a word. But Wesley was making up words to describe what this God can and wants to do in us. He moves inly. Say the word inly. You feel silly, don't you? That's not a word. Charles Wesley says, well, it is today. I want him to move inly in my life. And when that happens, he is ascending. And he intends to ascend through you into the situations that he puts you into. First thing is this, the God of Pentecost is a God who arises. Second thing is this, the God of Pentecost is a God who rides, it says, through deserts. Uh, Verse four, sing to God, sing praises to his name, exalt him as he rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and be jubilant before him. So remember the history here. When Israel was in Egypt, God delivers them and takes them miraculously out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Now that, (laughs) I mean, it's a big deal because it keeps coming up in Scripture. They keep saying, hey, this is the God that got us through the Red Sea, for crying out loud. we got to trust Him. He's a God that takes us through Red Seas, for crying out loud. That must have been a miracle to behold. The problem with that is when they get through the Red Sea, they find themselves in one of the most desolate pieces of real estate on planet Earth. It's called the Sinai Peninsula. I mean, they imagine they're, they're over there, and it says Miriam was dancing and, and singing, and what a hilarious day. When they were done dancing and singing, they probably said, okay, what now? And they looked out and thought, uh-oh, it's the desert now. And in the desert, God's going to do some extraordinary things to get them ready for the promised land. They must have been asking, why would a loving God do this kind of a thing? And it's because the people needed an education. Now, I teach at a seminary, and a lot of folks come to seminary thinking that what they're about ready to do is a slightly harder Sunday school class. And they're surprised when they find out, oh my goodness, this is like work! These are bunches of books, books that are hard to understand. This is exams and papers and tests. This isn't a Sunday school class. This is war. Really, what it becomes for them is a desert. This is where God does some of his best education is in the desert. Now, real quick, anybody feel yourself right now in your personal situation that you're in the desert? Anybody feel like I'm there? I'm in a desert. 
I'm in a dry spiritual place. And God, you've got to do something here in my dryness. Why would a loving God put you in the desert? Because we need discipleship and we need an education. So there they are. They're in the university of the desert. And he provides a curriculum that equips and trains his people to face down the enemies that are going to be in the promised land. So for almost two years, God teaches them about trust for food and protection, how to deal with bitterness, how to fight enemies, how to worship, and how to know his will. You can read all about this in Exodus 15 to verse 40. Most important in the desert, God enters into a marriage covenant with his people. He says, hey, I want to be married to you. I want you to be married to me. We're going to have a union here. And in this union, the world's going to know about Yahweh. The incredible marriage covenant of what we call the old covenant. And then, of course, it springs loose in the new covenant. The God of Pentecost is a God who rides through the desert. And I just want some of you to know this morning. And by the way, if you're not in the desert today, you will be. It comes for all of us. And usually comes because we need an education. Don't get mad at God. Just say, God, what do you want to teach me through the hell that I'm going through right now? What do you want to teach me through the dryness that I'm going through right now? What do you want to teach me as I'm going through what looks to me to be a lack of provision right now? And God's going to teach you. And you're going to come out of that ready to take on whatever enemy that is before you. You're going to come out of that ready to assume your promised land. Now, I don't mean the promised land in glory. I mean here. I think God has a promised land for you right here, right now. He wants you to live there. He wants you to be abundant there. By the way, he didn't say it'd be easy. Remember when they got to the promised land? What's the first thing that happens? They run into enemies in the promised land. Guess what? There's spiritual warfare in the promised land. He wants you to live there to recognize that God can meet your every need in spiritual warfare. He wants you to know this isn't a place where you just sit around and I provide for you. You got to get to work. Hey, y'all, work is part of abundance. Did you know it? He wants you to work. And what they do is they plant their crops. They harvest them. Sometimes they go through drought. They got to save up for that. All kinds of dynamics happen in the promised land, y'all. It didn't say it was easy. It just said it was good. It just says it was promised. It's God's and through God, ours. The third thing, this God of Pentecost is the God who is on the side of the poor. Verse 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Hmm. I'm trying to think of this illustration you ever think of something on the spot and think, I need to tell this, I feel like I'm supposed to tell, but maybe not if I can't think about what it was. Someone, 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 maybe even here right now. Whoever this was, Mary was telling me this. He gets into a situation where he's hearing an old man say, Hey, we preach sin in our church. We want people to know about sin in our church. We want, to know people, we want people to know about hell and damnation. Hell fire in our church. We don't leave anything out in our church. And whoever that guy was said, 
You ever preach about the sin of racism in your church? And they looked over. Had a black friend that was there. Says, hey, just forget about preaching sin in your church. Have him come and preach about sin. Racism in your church. And the guy all of a sudden, shut up. Y'all, it's true. We can't leave anything out of our Bibles. But this is one of those passages that we tend to leave out. And that is, God is on the side of the poor. God has a special relationship with the poor, with the prisoner, with the downcast, with the disenfranchised. And He wants us, His church. If He arises in us, He wants to say, I rise in you now because I want you to arise in a place called a prison. And because there's no barriers now for any of us to go out there right now, we ought to have an inordinate amount of people saying, I want to go. I need for you to go out to the abortion clinic. I need to go into the nursing homes. The minute they open up to us, I need for you to go into the schools. I need for you to go into situations where others won't want to go to do things others won't want to do to be the people others don't want to be. But a good bit of that's going to be, hey, do we want to go to the... Hey, by the way, some people... You know what really irritates me? I, I believe my whole life the people that preached what I'm preaching right now were liberals. And where I grew up, guess what? There's nothing lower than a liberal. I kind of grown to love liberal. Not political liberals necessarily, but the, this whole thing called be liberal with your life. In other words, give freely from your life. Give freely from your money. Give freely from you for my cause, not the government's cause particularly, but for my cause in my kingdom. If that's what liberal is, sign me up to be a liberal. I want to be a liberal. Amen? If that's what it means. And if conservative means, we're conserving our resources because, you know, the, the, the hungry out there, they, they just need to learn how to take care of themselves. We're saving our money. We're conserving our... If that's what a conservative is, I never want to be one of those. So I just want to be a conservative in the best sense of the word, a liberal in the best sense of the word. What I really want to be is say, those are categories of American politics. What I want to be is a kingdom man. And I want this to be a kingdom church. I want us to be kingdom women. I want us to be kingdom boys and girls. Let us be kingdom people. It's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's the Bible. Fatherless, widows, the prisoners, the lonely. This is what John Wesley said, let us be employed. This was his dream for Methodism. This is his dream for the people called Nazarene. This is his dream. He says, let us be employed, not in the highest, but in the meanest, not in the easiest, but the hottest service. He must have loved Mississippi. (laughs) Ease and plenty we leave to those that want them. Let us go on in toil, in weariness, in painfulness, in cold or hunger, so that we may but testify to the gospel, the grace of God. The writ... The honorable, the great, were thoroughly willing, if it be the will of our Lord, to leave to you. Only let us, along with the poor, the vulgar, the base, the outcasts of men. Take also to yourselves the saints of the world, but suffer us to call sinners to repentance. Even the most vile, the most ignorant, the most abandoned, the most fierce and savage of whom we can hear. To these we will go forth in the name of our Lord, desiring nothing, receiving nothing of any man save the bread we eat while we're under his roof, then let it be seen whether God has sent us. Anybody here want to call John Wesley a liberal? 
what he was as a man of God. And he said, I've read the Bible, and the Bible says over and over again that churches, local churches, need to run to the sound of the pain in their community. And if they ever hole up and just try to get as many people as possible to their church, and that's their whole reason for existence, that's tantamount to sin. Charles Spurgeon said, let the God who answers by orphanages, let him be God. Radical compassion, radical mercy is what Scott suggests made the early church so compelling across early centuries. It's what made early Methodism potent. It's what made the Baptists so great. It's what made any religious movement who they are and what they were intended to be because they were robust when they were obedient to Scripture at the point of the poor and the oppressed. Is day spring right now, y'all? Are we all that we need to be for the poor and for the oppressed? And Jesus says, I want you, Matt, to be a pastor of a church that continually tries to figure out How can we pour out our lives to the lonely, to the imprisoned, to the fatherless, to the homeless, to the hungry, all over the world, but especially, Matt, where I planted you all, all y'all, right there in the Jackson metro area. God help us to be that kind of church. Then this, it says, This God of Pentecost is a God who refreshes. Verse 7, God, when you marched through the desert, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You made plentiful rainfall, God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creature settled in it. Your kindness you provided for the poor, O God. You remember that time in your life when you were the driest? When you were the hottest, when you were the most in need of something refreshing. I mean, a physical time. You ever remember that time in your life when you were just hot? You were thirsty. The mostest time. Remember it? I remember what happened for us. Uh, we had gone on to a Boy Scout troop, and uh, many, many day spring young men have gone on to get their, uh, their Eagle Scout. And I suppose that was my dream for a few moments. I only got to second class which I kind of think is proverbial for my life. Second class scout, here I am. Second class, I can live with it. While I was trying to get to the next level, we were at Camp Kanza. And at Camp Kanza, we were going to take a hike one day. Now, it wasn't going to be an all-day hike. It's just a little one-hour, two-hour trip, and it's going to take us to the lake. And I remember starting off thinking, this won't last long, so why take any water? I mean, an hour hour to a kid, no problem. Two hours to a kid, tough it out. We were gone for three hours when I heard our scoutmaster, a guy named George McCown. Mr. McCown looked up to heaven and says, I'm not lost. This map is wrong. I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> well, now we're doubting the map, all right? And he was lost major league. He had no idea where we were going or what to do. Now, some of you women will recognize this in your husbands, all right? This map is wrong. I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I've said that a time or two. I've, I've started to doubt the GPS. I don't think so. Yeah, well, so, just kind of believe it. Anyway, here we are, lost as we can be, and about six hours later, 
I mean, we were boys. We were kids. This was child abuse. I'm sure if my parents would have heard about it, and I didn't tell my mom and dad anything, we would have gone over to George McCallum's house and said a thing or two. But we were out there. We were dying. And then all of a sudden, yeah, we've gone. And by the way, the temperature, it was 95. It was, we were sunburned. Didn't bring any lotion along. Lotions for wimps and nerds and all stuff. I got a burn. I, I just, I, I, I mean, it's so miserable. And finally, Mr. McCown found the lake. When we saw it, we looked first of all for the faucets. Are there any faucets around here? And sure enough, there was a faucet there. We cranked it open and we fought, literally fought for the opportunity to be first or second or third. Of course, there was about 15 of us. But we just wanted to put our mouth on that water. We wanted to be refreshed. And then we stripped down and ran into the lake. It is the most refreshing moment I remember out of my entire life. I'm sure many of us were about ready to expire and expire totally. In that moment, I think God was teaching us a lesson or two, and I don't doubt for a minute that some of those 15 guys are still telling the story just like I'm still telling it. The most refreshing moment of our lives. Hey, one of the things I love to do is go out to the prison. And uh, there was, out at the prison, for the first few years we were out there, I tried to go back to the same place. And this was actually the detention center at the time. I tried to go out to the same place every time. And my place was A3. Those are my guys. We would go in there and we had such a good day. It was almost like a revival every time we were out there. It lasted for about two years. Just a two-year revival. This is the place. And some of you remember me saying this. This is a place when I so trusted them, I just said, hey, you, 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 you. I knew who, who these guys were. I said, get up here. We're going to tag team preach. Oh my goodness, I'm going to preach for about 30 seconds to a minute, and then I'm going to hand it off, and you preach for 30 seconds to a minute, and, you, and we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and, and we picked up wherever the guy left off, using this passage of Scripture. I mean, it was, I wish I'd have taped it. It was awesome. That was a great, it, it, we had revival for two years in that place. They had a song, they had a couple songs they loved to sing. Uh, they loved to sing... Uh, He's an on-time God. Y'all ever heard the on-time God? Uh, I don't know. I don't know who sings. I don't know who first came out with it. But they love to sing. He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. On-time God. Yes, He is. Whoa, you may not come when you want Him, but He'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. Oh, my God. And they had verses to it, three, three verses to it. And I just thought every time, if anybody's singing that song that ought to get motivation out of it, it's guys that have been sitting in prison. And they haven't seen a judge for years. I remember one time, not long ago, they found a guy that had been out there eight years and hadn't seen a judge. Totally got lost in the system. Hey, y'all, to sing that song in that predicament and believe it, He's an on-time God. And He's going to bring you refreshment. He's going to bring you water. And the faucet is about ready to be turned on. 
may not come when you want it, <laughs> but you'll be there right on time. Because He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. Y'all, if you're in the desert right now, if you're dry right now, this God is going to refresh. He's on time. The last thing is this. This God of Pentecost is a God who reconciles. Boy, I believe this. In verse 32, so we didn't read this. Terry didn't read this, so this is all the way down to the end of this, uh, of this psalm. It says, verse 32, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Now, that kind of goes over right over, but it's saying this. It doesn't say, sing to God, Israel. It says, sing to God, kingdoms. And that is, all kingdoms someday are going to sing this song. A song of praise to God, not just Israel, but a place called America, a place called Russia, a place called Ukraine. Eventually, everybody sings this song of praise to the Lord. Why? Because our God is a great reconciling God. At Pentecost, you remember, it was a harvest festival. Jerusalem was full of people from all parts of the world. And the gift of tongues was given on that day. And the gift of tongues, the clearest picture we see of tongues, the way we know what it is for sure, is the gift of tongues was given that day so that the kingdoms of the world, people who represented the kingdoms of the world who were in Jerusalem that day, could hear the gospel in their native language and shag boogie back to their home to talk about this Jesus. This Jesus who is now Lord of all. This Jesus who was crucified, who died, who was buried, who rose again, ascended into heaven, and then came down, and on that day, filled us, and we're here to give testimony to you. We think that's exactly what happened at Rome. Paul never went to Rome. He writes Romans to the church at Rome. Where did the church of Rome come from? I think, many people think, it came the day of Pentecost. They heard the gospel in their tongue, and they went back to Rome and planted a group of people who were crazy enough to believe in a resurrected Jesus. I want you to know that nations mean places like America, Ukraine, places like China, different nations like that. But the word typically in the Bible is people groups, ethna, people groups. And so people groups basically have meant that we recognize even in America there are different nations. And I, I was going to put up a book here. I, for, I forgot to get the title this morning. But uh, there's a famous, relatively famous book called The Nine Nations of North America. And it breaks up North, North America into nine different areas. So you might imagine what we are. We are the Deep South. That's our nation. But then there's a the breadbasket of America. And that's kind of the middle area. Places like Kansas. So I came from breadbasket. And now I live in the Deep South. Can I tell you the truth? It's a different culture. The way you preach in Kansas is different than the way you preach down here. The way you relate to people up there is different than the, the way... I know this because it was like radical. One day I'm in Kansas, literally. The next day I'm in Mississippi. And they say, basically, this is your life. And it's been my life now for 34 years. And you just need to know... You ain't in Kansas anymore, boy. You somewhere else. And man, it has been a learning curve. Now, you don't know this, 
But John Perkins was at our graduation. We gave him an honorary doctorate. I gave the graduation speech that day. So John's sitting about as far as I am from, uh, from the podium right there. And I had opportunity, he's sitting, but I had opportunity to look back at him and say, can I tell a story? I was reading the book uh, with Justice for All one day. John wrote this book. And I got to page 38, read his testimony. I slammed it shut. It's a testimony of him getting brutalized in the Rankin County Jail and uh, barely escaping with his life. And after I closed the book, I said, sweetheart, there's two places we'll never live in America one state that I won't mention, and Mississippi. We're never going to live in Mississippi. No way. Five months later, there's a U-Haul headed out to Mississippi. It's almost like, Matt, don't talk to me like that. I am your God. You are not your God, all right? I will decide where you do and don't go. And so we've been here ever since. But I'm just going to tell you, can I say it again? This is a different place from where I came from. By the way, I just last week, thank you for being patient with me, but last week I went to Oregon. Can I tell you the truth about Oregon? That's a different place than Kansas and Mississippi, especially Mississippi. I mean, there's whole different ways of talking up there, whole different ways of thinking, whole different way of doing. Down here, basically, I'm perfectly ensconced in the deep south, which is a Bible belt. Hey, they ain't the Bible belt up there, y'all. Oh, no, 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 no. British Columbia and go right on down. Washington, Oregon, California, that's a whole different world. And so, just to say there are different places and different ways of operating. I've thought about that about the metro area, by the way. Think about it. The metro area. Are there different nations in the metro area? I'm going to tell you, uh, Northeast Jackson is different than South Jackson, is different than West Jackson, is different than Madison, is different than Rankin County. Uh, is different than Clinton. This is like, everybody's different. Now, not t- entirely weirded out different, just there are nuances to every place. I know, I live in Northeast Jackson, travel across about 25 minutes to come to church here. It's just a different place. I thank God for the different place, but it's different. And so, what does that mean? It means we ought to have one church in Metro Jackson and everybody comes to it. We don't believe that. We believe there ought to be churches all over the place meeting the needs of that community in a sp- particular and special way. So John Perkins, who I was talking about last week, and we know we're not bosom buddies or anything, but he knows who I am by name. I know obviously by name who he is. We love each other. I'm, I'm up there preaching the gospel and using him for illustration. It's a pretty cool day. But uh, Roberto Stevenson, who's my Mexico City megachurch pastor guy friend, right? He... Uh, he says, hey, did I ever tell you my John Perkins story? I said, no. You got a John Perkins story? He said, yeah. You know, before I went to Mexico, I was taking classes at Fuller Theological Seminary. And at Fuller, they've got a whole school of church growth. It's basically, here are the principles by which the church grows. And one of the principles is the homogeneous unit principle. And the homogeneous unit principle says, day spring, ought to go try to find one group of people and be happy with that. That's how we'll best grow. And John Perkins comes in as a guest speaker, and say, I don't believe in that kind of church growth. That's not biblical. That's not righteous. That's not the way it ought to be. I mean, it was, and Roberto Stevenson's going, huh? huh? No one comes to Fuller and says that. No one comes into a church growth class and says that. But there he was. He was saying it. Y'all, 
May we choke and die as a church when we say, let's just go after our people. Because there are people groups all over this metro area that need the loving touch of who we are. And we need to plant churches in that area. We need to go ourselves to those people. We need to evangelize. Anybody God puts in our path is to be ripe for day springerism, whatever that is. I just made that up. Day springerism is biblical Christianity. That's all. Y'all, Psalm 68 is pretty cool. It's a Pentecost, it's an ascension. It's you and me this week. Anybody here willing to be as radical as Psalm 68 this week for the gospel? Will you please stand? I want to pray for you. Father, Son, and Spirit. We're not playing games with this, Lord. We recognize you call us to be extraordinary in your midst. Extraordinary in the midst of our enemies. Extraordinary in the midst of the nations of the metro area. Now, Jesus, that being the case, we ask that you will ascend in us. We want to be inly kind of people this week because there's going to be all kinds of enemies out there. There's going to be all kinds of challenges out there. There's going to be all kinds of people that desperately need you. God, I'm going to say on behalf of these people here this morning, on behalf of the sheep of Dayspring, we're ready. Come live in us and then let us loose in every challenging situation you think you want us to handle, and we will let you ascend within us and through us to these places of serious need all over this community. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen? Amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you.